Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. The cover art for today's episode is by artist and listener Sarah Otterstatter. You can find out more about her at www.sara-otterstatter.de. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Sarah Lutra, and that's S-A-R-A-L-U-T-R-A, and Lutra is actually the Latin name for the Eurasian River Otter. She's available for private commissions, and you can contact her under illustration at sarah-otterstatter.de, S-A-R-A-O-T-T-E-R-S-T-A-E-T-T-E-R.de. Thanks so much, Sarah, for your wonderful artwork. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Just then, he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and in the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and Gunpowder, the Black Steed, and the Goblin Rider passed by like a whirlwind. Spooktacular people, welcome to this 155th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Denise, I am very excited for this episode, and we've heard from a lot of our listeners that they're excited about it too, so I hope we do it justice. We are going to be focusing on something that seems to be synonymous when it comes to Halloween, and that is Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman. This episode's topic and location were suggested to us by Lexi Goober and Seth Nathan, and we got some research help from Melissa Kabick. I think many of our at least older listeners, I don't know about younger ones, all of us probably have the legend of Sleepy Hollow in our memory banks when it comes to thinking about our childhoods and Halloween. 
And I know one of my favorite versions of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was done by Walt Disney Studios. Yes, it was. And the Headless Horseman is actually very, very involved still with a lot of things that happen at Disney. Yeah, Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party, their parade always starts with the Headless Horseman riding down the street. I know, it's very, very cool. And unfortunately, one of its past attractions, they used to have a haunted trail ride around this time of year over at Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort and Campground. And we were fortunate enough to go on it the year before it went away. And we actually got chased by the Headless Horseman. It was a very cool experience. We had mom and dad along for it. And the woman who was the carriage driver was telling us the story, the legend of Sleepy Hollow. And you're going in these backwood areas. And there, she even stopped where there was like a bridge and there was a little house off in the distance. So it was like, gosh, this is almost set up like it's supposed to go with the story. And in the back of our minds, we're thinking, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if the Headless Horseman happened to come out here? But we're thinking, this is Disney. They're not going to scare us that way. Well, my parents were sitting opposite us, so they were facing the back of the carriage. And all of a sudden, towards the end of the ride, we see my parents' eyes get really wide. And we're like, what is it? And we turn around, and it is the headless horseman chasing us. And she took off with the carriage, and he stopped us and circled around us a few times. And it was really thrilling. You know, it was just a great time. And too bad that Disney doesn't do that anymore, because it was a lot of fun. It was one of my favorite things that we've done there. Not only do we have a history of Headless Horsemen in different parts of the world, but this Headless Horseman in particular that goes with the legend of Sleepy Hollow, he'd been around for quite a while too. Washington Irving didn't just dream up this story all on his own and dream up Sleepy Hollow all on his own. These were real locations and real legends that he was told. So we're looking forward to sharing those with you and talking about the history and haunts of this fabulous little village. Before we share all of that with you all, we would love to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We do want to let our executive producers know, and that is any of you who are giving at the $1 or above amount, we do have our virtual meetup coming up on October 22nd. It's a Saturday. We're going to try out a Saturday instead of a Sunday and see if we can get more of you there. And we're going to do a morning. It will be at 10 a.m. Eastern time. So for those of you over on the West Coast, you're going to have to get up a little bit early on Saturday to hang out with us. Those of you over across the pond, it'll be in the afternoon. So it'll be a little nicer for you guys. And Australia, I'm not sure exactly what time that's going to be, but just wake up and join us. Absolutely. And for you people on the Pacific Coast, only your host, Diane, would schedule something on a Saturday morning after Friday night at 7 a.m. Just saying. We're going to be talking all things Halloween. So you want to join us for that. We also got an email from Cassandra. She wrote, hello, ladies. I'm happy to say that you finally did an episode that I have a real experience with. When I listened to it yesterday, I knew that I finally had my chance to write in. And this is in regards to the catacombs of Paris. First, let me say that your podcast helps me get through busy seasons as an accountant. I've listened to every single one, and we definitely appreciate that. My first experience in the catacombs was a visit with my mother after high school in which we toured the official section. It was as creepy as you described, but I was struck even more so by the sheer magnitude of bones. There are so many people tucked away in there and from so many centuries. It really brings to mind the temporary nature of life. All those people had lives, and it makes you feel really small to see only the remainder. My second experience in the catacombs was in the uncharted, unofficial section. Uh Uh-oh. After college, I lived in Europe for nine months, and during that time, I visited Paris. While there, I stayed with a gentleman from Tunisia who had a friend that had explored the catacombs extensively. 
It just so happened that the friend, I'll call him Jean-Luc, was planning another expedition while I was there. Initially, when he invited me, I was skeptical because I knew it was illegal and wasn't sure I wanted to risk it. However, I'm very glad Jean-Luc convinced me because it is still one of the coolest things I've ever done. We used a secret entrance that was located on the outside of town. In fact, it was the last metro stop. We took some stairs that led under a bridge to a railway. We followed the railroad until we were under a section of buildings. It was completely dark and we were careful to use no light so we wouldn't be spotted. Against the wall in the tunnel was a little dugout section that led eight feet down to a high section of the quarries or catacombs, as this section does not contain bones, I'll call it the quarry. Once inside, we turned on our headlamps and we began our Indiana Jones-type adventure. The first part of the tunnel was clear, cool, and obviously pitch black. There were about eight of us in the group, so I felt some safety in numbers. We kept moving downward in the tunnels until a section that was about two feet full of water. Luckily, it was just rainwater runoff, and we braced our feet against the wall to get through that section. My gosh. It was maybe 500 meters long. After that, we came to the spot where the man you mentioned in the 1700s died. The inscription is carved into the wall. I remember realizing then how close he was to an exit. That's really cool to hear that in person. I love these personal experiences. It makes us feel like we're really there. Close by, there was one of the first rooms we stopped in. This one was called the dining room. It had been carved supposedly by quarry workers for their breaks. There was a table with benches and shelves all around carved straight out of the limestone. It was here that we started to hear voices. We all turned out our lights and were really quiet. As the footsteps approached, we knew we were going to be discovered. As it was happening, my heart was beating so fast and I was already running through scenarios of being in a French jail and what I was going to tell my parents. I was 20 when this happened. Luckily, the people coming did stop and it turns out they were another group of urban explorers from Germany. We must have scared the living daylights out of them sitting in the dark like that. (laughs) We ended up all hanging out and sharing snacks together in a really special moment. After my group continued on through the tunnels with Jean-Luc telling us about his adventures. He once packed up a bag and spent a whole week alone down there. Oh my gosh. He said he came across some people that hadn't been out in years and just have a life down there. He didn't take us into that section. He did take us through lots of crazy rooms where you could see the chisel work done by the quarry workers. We had to climb up boulders and slide through this one place where I thought I might suffocate, but all to get to the art gallery. In this set of rooms, they were quite vast, almost like underground caverns. I saw some of the most beautiful graffiti art that I think has ever been painted. I will email you some of this art because it was so astounding. You walk into the huge space in complete darkness, and as your light shines on the walls, you see spaces of magnificent color and beauty. At the other end of the art gallery is a small square room where a rendition of The Wave by Hakusai. That's my wave, That's I your think. wave. Oh yeah, my I think gosh, I love that wave. That's Denise's oh. favorite. Has been painted on the four walls in these beautiful blues and oranges. Needless to say, we spent a few hours in this section of the quarries. On our way back out, we saw many inscriptions from people through the centuries, quarry workers from the 1600s and 1700s, many different languages and dates all the way through present. We made our way out by the same means and headed back, wet, dusty, and extraordinarily happy on the metro. Altogether, we spent about five hours down below Paris and walked maybe six miles of the over 200 miles of tunnels. It was such an amazing and unique experience that I'm so glad I get to share it with you. While down there, I did not experience anything paranormal, which is good because I would have freaked out. I can see, though, if someone has been down there alone of any amount of time, how you might start to see lights and hear things. The echoing of the water dripping is very strange through the tunnels, and your eyes do strange things when you are in complete darkness, struggling to make sense of your surroundings. Thank you again, and I hope you enjoyed my story. I definitely did. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Cassandra. Just hearing that story sounds absolutely phenomenal. I wonder why they don't let people go down there. It just sounds like it would be such a neat thing for people to experience. 
it is way too dangerous. I mean, you heard her talking about having to maneuver their way through things. She thought she was going to suffocate at one point. I think it's just there's they don't want to take responsibility. Oh, that minor detail. People might die. Just have them sign a waiver. <laughs> yeah. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Brent. Hey, Brent. Leah. Hello, Leah. Nathan. Hi, Nathan. Christine. Hey, Christine. Chris. Hi, Chris. Joy with an I. Hey, Joy with an I. Joshua. Hi, Joshua. And Caitlin. Hey, Caitlin. All right, Denise, are you ready to travel out to Sleepy Hollow and meet up with the Headless Horseman? Yes, I am. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. Many people know the story of Solomon Northrop's life as a slave. He was a man born to a freed slave and a free African-American woman. Thus, he was a free man. But for 12 years, he was in bondage after being drugged, kidnapped, and sold into slavery. His wife and family had no idea where he was, and they assumed he was dead. A Canadian man got word back to New York, and several people worked together to free Solomon. He documented these years of his life in a book that became an Academy Award-winning movie, 12 Years a Slave. Did you know that Solomon would become lost again, but not only to his family? His disappearance in 1857 is one of history's mysteries. Solomon was on a tour through Canada giving lectures that year. He was in the next stop, which was Streetsville, Ontario, and he just disappeared to never be seen again. People have wondered if he was murdered in retaliation or if he was kidnapped and sold again. Some wondered if he died of natural causes, but surely we would know that. He was a man who was becoming fairly well known, and yet he was able to just disappear without a trace. And that certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. This Day in History On this day, October 16th in 1923... Walt and Roy Disney founded the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio. It was incorporated in 1929 as Walt Disney Productions. That original company would become the Walt Disney Animation Studios, a division of the Walt Disney Company. Walt was the creative side of the business, while Roy maintained the finances. Roy would eventually be bought out by Walt and become the first CEO of the company. The initial focus was on cartoon shorts, but eventually they would release animated feature films. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was their first full-length feature in 1937. 
Zootopia, which was released in 2016, is the studio's 55th feature film. The studio was the premier animation studio and developed many of the early animation film techniques, including storyboarding. These techniques are the core of traditional animation. The Brothers Studio made stars of characters like Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy. History Goes Bump Podcast. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is a well-known piece of fiction written by Washington Irving in 1819. Many of us first heard the story in our youth, and the tale fueled our imagination with images of a headless horseman chasing a man through the forest, carrying a fiery pumpkin that represented his head. It was a terrifying tale. But is this just a piece of fiction? Is there some truth to the story? Headless figures seem quite common in the world of the paranormal, so it's not too hard to believe that some may ride horses. And what of this place called Sleepy Hollow? There is a town that does indeed bear this name, as does a cemetery, and both are reputed to be haunted. Join us as we explore the legends of the Headless Horseman and the history and hauntings of Sleepy Hollow. Ichabod Crane is like you and I, intrigued by stories of the supernatural. So was Washington Irving. He was born in 1783, the baby of a family with 11 children. The family was living in Manhattan, New York at the time, and the Revolutionary War was coming to an end. George Washington was a national hero, and Washington Irving was named after him. Like many writers, Irving had a wonderful imagination, and he would rather write a story about an adventure than stick to his studies. He regularly snuck out of class and headed to the theater. Yellow fever broke out in 1798, and Irving's parents sent him to Terrytown to keep him away from the sickness. Irving fell in love with the area and enjoyed hearing the stories about local lore. He took on many hats as he got older. He went to law school and passed the bar. He worked in his family's merchant business, and he fought during the War of 1812. He spent many years in Europe after the war working to save the family's merchant business. He continued writing, and in 1819, he included a short story called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow in a volume of short stories he had written. The story was set in 1790 in a town called Sleepy Hollow that was a Dutch settlement. In the book, this is a town that is described as a little different than other places. The place seems almost enchanted with residents that believe strongly in the supernatural. This was a village near Terrytown, New York. The area was first inhabited by the Wet'kwasgek Native Americans that were possibly part of the Mohican tribe. The Dutch set up New Netherlands in the state that would become New York, and everything was peaceful for a time. Eventually, conflict broke out. The Dutch settled in the area that would become known as Sleepy Hollow. The nearby Pocantico River was known by the Dutch as the Slapper's Haven or Sleeper's Haven. Sleepy Hollow appears to be a later, anglicized version of this name and was used to refer to the whole area, not just the river. In 1664, the British took over and renamed New Netherlands, New York. At that time, Dutchman Frederick Phillips made the Pocantico Purchase, which included virtually all of the present-day Sleepy Hollow. Phillips built a church, a mill, and a manor house in 1685. The area was kept heavily forested and used for farmlands, and it remained that way for decades. 
Terrytown would industrialize, but Sleepy Hollow kept its quaint charm, and Washington Irving loved to explore it and hunt and fish there. The Dutch traditions and stories were strong in Sleepy Hollow. The Dutch church was a central hub, and people came from all over to attend services and gatherings there. Eventually, Sleepy Hollow would be incorporated as North Terrytown. It wouldn't be until the 1980s that people would start calling for the original name to come back. It did in 1996. So now we know that Sleepy Hollow was and is a real location. Irving did not make it up. But what of the main antagonist of the story, the Headless Horseman? There was a tradition dating back to a time a few years before Irving came to Sleepy Hollow that spoke of a Headless Horseman. He first heard the story from an African-American mill worker at Carl's Mill, which was the Sleepy Hollow Mill. The horseman was a Hessian soldier who had served during the Revolutionary War, and he'd lost his head to a cannonball. Rumors circulated that he haunted the cemetery where he was buried. There was only one cemetery in Sleepy Hollow at the time, the Old Dutch Burying Ground. Hessian troops had raided the various villages during the war, and so a Hessian soldier on horseback was a terrifying thing to the local people. The soldier in the story becomes even more frightening because he is without his head, so he more than likely is looking to replace that head. A headless ghost also seems inhuman because it lacks the ability to express emotions. Thus, such a figure is terrifying. The original legend that Irving Bates' short story on went something like this. A Dutchman was drinking at the local tavern in Terrytown and heard the story of a Hessian soldier who was buried in the old Dutch burying ground without his head because it could not be found. The men spoke of a ghost on a horse galloping through the cemetery, and they surmised that he was looking for his lost head or attempting to lead the troops in a charge up old Chatterton Hill during the Battle of White Plains. The Dutchman laughed at such a story, but when he left the tavern at midnight and began his walk home in the dark, he was no longer laughing. When the graveyard came into sight, he felt an uneasiness, and he quickened his step. His eye was caught by a light emitting from the ground in the graveyard. A white mist rose from an unmarked grave. He began to sweat, and his heart pounded. The mist formed into a horse with a headless rider, and the Dutchman screamed. He dropped his lantern and ran. He ran as fast as he could to the bridge because the lore about the water tells us that spirits cannot cross it. He stumbled and tumbled from the road. As the headless horseman galloped past him, he saw that it was wearing a Hessian uniform. He hid in the bushes for a while, and then he went home to tell his wife what happened. The story soon spread through Terrytown, and people began to believe that the headless horseman was real. To add more credence to the legend, there are historical facts to back it up. There's a marker on Merritt Hill that reads, This historic site is Merritt Hill, which marks one of the actions in the Battle of White Plains on October 28, 1776. During the attack on Chatterton Hill, the British marched up the road to Connecticut, Lake Street, to attack the left flank of Washington's defense assembled on Hatfield Hill, opposite Merritt Hill. General Heath, under General Washington, had placed Colonel Malcolm, his New York regiment, and Lieutenant Fenno with one field piece to station Merritt Hill in defense of Hatfield Hill. Lieutenant Fenno fired a cannonball directly into 20 British horsemen approaching Hatfield Hill. This single shot caused the British to retreat back towards White Plains. This historic marker details a brief skirmish between American and British forces, but that's not the whole story. The British also brought along reinforcements in the form of Hessian mercenaries from Germany, and it was one of these unlucky men who was to find himself the recipient of one cannonball to the head and live in infamy as the headless horseman. As American General William Heath wrote in his journal, quote, A shot from the American cannon at this place took off the head of a Hessian artillery man. They also left one of the artillery horses dead on the field. 
What other loss they sustained was not known. End quote. Irving not only heard tales from the people of Sleepy Hollow, but he read General Heath's journal. So is that where he got the idea for his Hessian soldier to have lost his head? It was actually something that was documented by an American general. Ichabod Crane was an actual military man who served in the War of 1812 who met Washington Irving at Fort Pike in Sackets Harbor, New York in 1814, and he was inspired to use this name as his main character. So this is Ichabod Crane is where he got the name from this gentleman that he had met, but the actual character that he based it on was someone who lived in the town and was a friend of his. Stories and legends of a headless horseman are found in Celtic, German, American, and Indian folklore. In Ireland, he is known as the Dullahan or Dullachan, which means dark man. The dark man is a terrifying figure described as a headless fairy astride a black horse, carrying his head under his inner lower thigh or holding it high so that he can see a great distance. He wields a whip made from a human corpse's spine. When the dark man stops riding, a death would occur. In some versions, he can be frightened away by wearing a gold object or putting one in his path. In Glenmore on the island of Mole in Scotland rides a headless horseman near the 13th century Dwart Castle. The horseman is said to be Ewan McLean of Lockbuie. He had a goal of being a chieftain, but that dream was cut short when he lost his head in battle. He continues to search for it to this day. Scott's Magazine has a more detailed account of the story behind Ewan McLean's demise, and here's a brief bit about the legend itself. I first became aware of the presence of the awesome specter of the headless horseman that haunted the roads of Mull when I was still an impressionable schoolboy with two miles of lonely island road to walk each way to and from school, summer and winter. One morning I learned that the grocer's van had been confronted by the specter at a bend just above our house and escaped only by cutting the corner and bumping across what was, fortunately, a soft heathery flat. Why, I saw the evidence of it with my own eyes when I went up and examined the deep tire marks. As time went on, more evidence came to my notice. In particular, there were two very ancient trees whose trunks grew almost horizontally along the ground, one by the roadside near Salem, now gone since the construction of the new road, the other beside the bridal path where it skirts Loch Baugh, the right-of-way that once crossed the soldier of Ben Moore in Central Mole. In each case, a Maclean of Duart was walking along in the dusk when he was attacked by the headless horseman, who was a Maclean of Lochbuie and had no use for the Duart Macleans. In each case, the man managed to fend off the ghost attacker with his dirk in one hand while holding his ground by gripping a young sapling in the other. The struggle went on until cock crow. Then, of course, the specter had to retire to the shades, leaving the McLean men exhausted but safe beside the saplings, which they had almost torn out by the roots during the struggle, and which grew horizontally ever after. Many a time as I toddled home in the dark past the cemetery, which was bad enough, along the winding road lined by dark, humpy bushes concealing unknown terrors, I quaked at the idea of the headless horseman suddenly lowering above me on his black charger, even although I wasn't a McLean. Germany has the legend of the wild huntsman that originated near Saxony. This is a headless horseman who blows a horn to warn hunters not to ride the next day. It's a portent of danger, and Germans believe it means that there will be an accident. Some variations of the German lore make him out to be a good guy or a type of vigilante dealing swift justice against perpetrators of capital crimes. The headless horseman is seen as a heroic figure in Indian folklore. The Jahinijar is described as Rashput Prince who lost his head while defending a village from bandits. He refused to back down even after being beheaded. 
In Madhya Pradesh folklore, it is said that he is born out of a violent and wrongful death or deaths that have occurred while protecting innocents. He does not harm innocent people and is vulnerable to powdered indigo dye. wonder what it is about dye that gets him. It's kind of like the blue paint that they use against the boohag. Exactly, and that, that they even described as a, as a deep blue, more, almost like an indigo there, too. Chicago has its very own headless horseman. This legend dates back to the Pullman strike of 1894. It was named for George Pullman and the company he created building the Pullman sleeper cars for trains after the Civil War. The company town of Pullman, Illinois, was built around a factory. Things were good until the financial panic of 1893. Pullman cut employee wages heavily, but didn't cut the cost of living, mainly rent. The employees were outraged and their union took action. Employees boycotted Pullman trains and threatened to strike during protests. What had started off as peaceful got violent when the government stepped in. President Cleveland sent in the army. Protesters set fire to buildings and several civilians and soldiers died in the melee. Union leaders were arrested, the strike was broken, and the plant reopened. Shortly thereafter, stories of a headless horseman riding near the 4900 block of Loomis Street were told. Many believe he was a cavalryman who lost his life during the strike violence. Makes you wonder how he got his head cut off. Yeah, who knows? Especially, well, being down with all that industrial stuff, you could see maybe. I don't know. And I don't know that President Cleveland really had a choice here because the problem is when they started talking about strikes and stopping the trains, that's the main way they were getting mail to and from. And that's one of the president's duties is to make sure that the mail still gets out. So kind of didn't have a choice there. But obviously, whenever you get the military involved, things tend to get heated up a bit. So now we know that Irving was inspired by a legend that the people of Sleepy Hollow told, and it would seem that this village had a headless horseman specter. Was Sleepy Hollow as superstitious and haunted as Irving seems to describe in his story? Irving wrote in his story, Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others, that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs that are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare, oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country. And the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it a favorite scene of her gambles. So you just listen to the way that Washington Irving describes the people of Sleepy Hollow. Because he's not just saying this about these people, this is really what he thought about them. And obviously they had some of this going on there because they came up with this Headless Horseman legend. Yes, and he did spend time there. I mean, that was one of his favorite places to go. So, There are those in our modern era that claim that Sleepy Hollow is one of the most haunted cities in America. There are two cemeteries that are connected to each other. The first is the original Old Dutch burying ground that we have mentioned and the favorite place of the Headless Horseman. It's situated next to the Old Dutch Church, which is the second oldest extant church in New York. It was built in 1699 from Fieldstone, and the walls are two feet thick. Clapboard is above the roof line. The interior furnishings are built from wood. Burials began at the churchyard in 1650. Frederick Phillips is buried here, and he's the man who originally bought this whole area and built that church. 
As for hauntings, of course, there have been sightings of the Headless Horseman in that cemetery. And one of the things about this church, too, is it had a fire in the 1800s. And when they restored it, they changed a lot of things about it. But as we got into more recent years, they decided to put it back the way it was, which is what we like to do is have things restored back to the way they were. And so the way it appears today is very similar to the way that it was when it was originally built. Of course, they've had to redo the interior wood furnishings and such because they just don't survive. And and a lot of it was burned in the fire and they rebuilt new stuff. But be very neat to see this. I agree. And we already know that several of our listeners have. I think, uh, didn't Jill Phoenix say she'd been there? I think so. A lot of them were posting that they had the opportunity to go. I believe uh, Philip Childers has been there. Matthew Herons, and he posted some pictures. And also Don O'Crean, who shared a bunch of photos that are in the show notes for today's episode. Now, the other cemetery is the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery that was originally named Terrytown Cemetery. This is where Washington Irving was buried, and the cemetery took the name Sleepy Hollow at his request. Other notable people buried at this cemetery are Walter Chrysler, Andrew Carnegie, Elizabeth Arden, William Rockefeller, and Robert Havel Jr., who printed and colored Audubon's Birds of America series. That's why I added his name, because, you know, me and my birds, so. (laughs) Yes, and those are very, very cool series of art. Yep. The cemetery opened in 1849 and encompasses 85 acres with 40,000 burials. Very low disembodied whispering has been heard by people walking through the graveyard. An apparition has made an appearance on several occasions and seems to wander between the headstones. That's pretty amazing. 40,000 burials. That's a pretty large cemetery. In my mind, I was seeing a little place, but this is really big, 85 acres. Yes, that's a lot. There's a Gothic Revival-styled mansion that overlooks the Hudson River in Terrytown, New York, known as Lindhurst Castle. It was designed by Alexander Jackson Davis in 1838 and has been home to former New York City Mayor William Paulding, Merchant George Merritt, and railroad tycoon Jay Gould. It was originally named Knoll. The design was so unique that many called it Paulding's Folly. Each of the men who lived in the house expanded it. Merritt renamed it Lindenhurst after all the linden trees on the property. At some point, it became simply Lindhurst. The mansion has appeared in the 70s movies House of Dark Shadows and Night of Dark Shadows, both based on the famous gothic soap opera Dark Shadows. Did you watch it when they did the remake a few years back? I haven't watched it ever. Wow, I loved that one, and it didn't stay on TV for very long. I was very, very bummed to lose our Barnabas Collins, the vampire. The grounds have haunts. There's the story of a little girl ghost in a white dress that has been seen running through the bushes and hiding behind trees. Visitors claim to sometimes hear a small child's laugh. When people run over to where they've seen her, they find nothing and no one. It's believed that she is the child of one of the former owners who drowned in the Hudson River. Behind the mansion, there's a statue with hands high in the air looking skyward. During the month of October, the statue is reputed to weep. The statue is said to haunt anyone who tries to harm it or deface it. The home where Washington Irving lived in Sleepy Hollow is called Sunnyside. It was a small cottage sitting on the banks of the Hudson River when Irving moved into it in 1835. He renovated the place and expanded it to the beautiful home that it is today. He collaborated with his artist neighbor, George Harvey. The home is enveloped in the vines of an exotic wisteria plant. Most of the furnishings are original. It is reputed to be haunted by Irving and his nieces. Their apparitions have all been seen around the house doing things to tidy up. 
what's neat is this house has stayed in the family for all those years. And so that's why they were able to retain many of the original furnishings. I've heard people say that it's like taking a step right back into the 1800s to visit there. Oh, wow. I definitely want to go to these places. Irving mentions a location known as Raven's Rock in the short story. This is a place that is described as foreboding and dark on the east side of Buttermilk Hill. The legend that went with this location, according to Irving, was our infamous Lady in White. But there are those that claim there are three ghosts that haunt this place. So we're not sure if he just included the Lady in White because that was one of the legends he'd been told and he hadn't heard the other ones or if he just chose one. These three ghosts are described in the book History of the Tarrytowns by Jeff Canning and Wally Buxton. Raven Rock is part of Buttermilk Hill in the northern reaches of the Rockefeller Estate near the old Hawthorne Traffic Circle. Legend tells us that three ghosts, not just Irving's Lady in White, roam the area. The Lady in White was a girl who got lost in a snowstorm and sought shelter from the fierce wind in a ravine by the rock. The snow drifted in and she perished during the night. It is believed that the spirit of the Lady meets the wanderer with cries that resemble the howling of the wind and gestures that remind one of drifting snow, warning all to stay away from the fatal spot. A more ancient legend tells of a Native American maiden who was driven to her death at Raven Rock by a jealous lover. Her spirit is believed to roam the area, lamenting her fate. The third spirit is that of a colonial girl who fled from the attentions of an armorous Tory raider during the revolution and leaped from the rock to her death. Patriot's Park is a four-acre park between Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow that saw activity during the Revolutionary War. It is said that a Haitian soldier was beheaded in the park and that his apparition is seen here. So apparently, there could be two headless Hessian ghosts at Sleepy Hollow, or somebody got their facts mixed up. A more prominent haunting is connected to a monument erected in 1853 in honor of an event that occurred in the park. Three Patriot militiamen stopped a man wearing regular clothing, and they started asking him where he was heading. That man was Major John Andre. He did not answer in a timely manner, so they decided to search him and found papers on his person that connected him to Benedict Arnold and some high-level espionage. He was quickly arrested for being a British spy. Benedict Arnold managed to run away to Britain, but Andre was sentenced to death by General George Washington. He was hanged on October 2, 1780. An unnatural spirit has been felt near the monument, and people claim to see the spirit of Major Andre in his full military dress near the monument. The major was a poet, and sometimes the utterings of poetry by an unseen entity are heard. Our listener Dawn O'Crean contacted us when she heard the topic of the episode and sent pictures. She said, while walking the grounds alone, it can feel a little anxious at times or as if you're being watched. But I've been able to walk through here without much incident. However, as a photographer, this place is like a carnival for me. When approaching certain stones, I find myself asking out loud if it's okay or may I, or sometimes I will take a photo, not feeling any resistance, and compliment them on their beautiful stone. There have also been times, though, where I have felt resistance to the camera and see a big old no in my head. I leave those alone and tell them how nice they are anyway. Maybe they'll change their mind next time. Enough can't be said for the foliage on the grounds here. The trees alone seem wise and secretive. This month, they do have the headless horseman making rounds on the weekends at the old Dutch church cemetery. I went with my 17-year-old daughter. She barely cared. I reacted as if I saw one of the Beatles. I told her we would have had the same reaction because we do that with his appearance at uh, Magic Kingdom. Exactly. Sleepy Hollow is a place that is perfect for Halloween, not only because the beloved Halloween classic, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, is set here, but because this area seems to be genuinely haunted. Or is it? 
Were these stories that inspired Irving true or just legends? Do ghosts wander among the tombstones? Is Sleepy Hollow haunted? Does the Headless Horseman really ride in the dark of night? That is for you to decide. Well, I know. I just want to visit it just because it's Sleepy Hollow, period, end of story. Definitely. I would love to add this on one of our road trips eventually down the road. And we love cemeteries, so it's perfect. It's like a Taphophile's dream. Yeah, two cemeteries, haunted stories, beautiful scenery, and a photographer's dream. Our next episode is going to keep the creep factor going as we move in closer to Halloween. This is apparently a very haunted location in Romania and very creepy. A place where there's a huge, and when I say huge, I mean huge area where nothing grows. Nothing seems to be able to grow. This is the Hoyobachu Forest. We're looking forward to bringing that to you. We got a review over on iTunes to share with you. This is from Chris's Attic Mummy. I wonder if he knows he has a mummy in his attic. Four stars. Yay for ghost history. It's a breath of fresh air to hear a history podcast that is not the everyday topic. Though there are sometimes errors in continuity and facts, it is generally good and fun. Really like the fact that the hosts try to include everyone. They really care about their listeners. They also make me want to travel to many different places. Keep up the good work, ladies, and the others associated with the podcast. Well, thank you, Chris, for that, or Chris's mummy. We want to thank you guys for tuning in for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Emma Pett. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.